Paddy Upton, the former India and Proteus coach, has taken us through his journey from cricket to life mentoring part one of this conversation. Today we complete the discussion talking about the concept of servant leadership and the myth that is mental toughness. I'm Craig Ray and welcome again to the Maverick Sports Podcast. I'm often asked about how do you manage the Maverick, that, that superstar who behaves differently. And there's two things. So in that T20 cricket, we have about five days to work with the team before the first game and you have a six-week tournament. So there isn't time in that period to really help rehabilitate the way Michael Clark and David Warner were behaving at the time. There wasn't enough time. If we were given a year, two or three years, yes, I would say let's take them on board. Um, and my message, I guess, to management is you don't want those destructive individuals in your team for any length of time. If they're a high performer and they're a cancer, well, they might deliver results today, but they're going to sink the whole body tomorrow. But we mustn't use that as an excuse for our inability as leaders to manage difficult individuals. Mm. So we first need to look at ourselves and say, is this a leadership shortcoming within me that I can't handle this person, therefore I label them as destructive or this maverick? Um, we need to be really, really smart. And if you tried everything and you know it's not my lack of ability to handle a difficult person, this person actually is beyond rehabilitating in this space of time, in this particular environment, because they'll be fine somewhere else. Yeah, for uh, a while. For a while. Mm. Um, and that's happening. So, so the, to get back to the, the personal mastery is becoming more and more important. That's where contentment, that's where fulfillment comes in. That's where the long-term success, that's the stuff that sustains us as human beings, not just as a high performer. And um, the kind of person we are really does impact other people. And when we need to be working in teams, uh, you want to be picking people who are good blokes. You talk about servant leadership, um, you know, that, I guess you've touched on that there. That's that's you sacrificing yourself to empower and better the team in some way. How, how would you define that? Well, I wouldn't use the word sacrifice. That doesn't sit well. But it, we, we spoke earlier about ego. So, so ego, every single one of us has ego and it drives four behaviors. Just differently, but it's the same four behaviors. It drives us to want to look good. If we can't look good, it drives us to not look bad. Mm -hmm. It drives us to want to be right. And if we can't be right, it drives us to not want to be wrong. When we're in ego, we're always serving our needs. It's our agenda that is placed front and center, and it's how, other, how I look through in other people's eyes. So ego is all about me, where servant leadership is about placing other people's needs at front and center. I don't sacrifice my needs, but I place other people's needs ahead of mine. So my job I see as a coach is to serve my players, or if I'm working in a business context, is to serve those individuals' best needs. So first thing, I need to find out what are your needs? What is it that you're wanting out of this experience? I need to really listen and then bring the best of my skills and experience and knowledge to serve that person's needs ahead of mine, as opposed to being there thinking, well, I want to be here to look good for people to think that I'm doing a great job or a great coach or a great leader. Then I'm placing my agenda up front. So on the one side, you've got ego. And when we're in ego, we're never in awareness. Yeah. Um, ego is about me. Where servant leadership, there is an awareness that ego will come in all the time and wanting to place itself in, ahead of other people's agendas. I need to be aware enough of my ego to move it aside and go, no, that's not important. What's important is what is it that you're wanting and how can I serve whatever your agenda is and if I'm not sure, ego will try and get me to 
be the person who's seen to have the answers where that's just my ego again if i move that aside and so, and i can't meet someone's needs my answer then from a servant leadership perspective is i i actually really don't know but let me help you go and find the best answer yeah and you and you use an example a couple of examples of that in the book one where the indian team had a particularly poor odi against sri lanka i think it was and yep. Gary Kirsten really wanted to go and give them a piece of his mind, which wasn't your 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 style at the time. You always left yes. it for the next day to to do the washout rather than at a high high emotional state. And and you talked him down because he wanted to do it more for his own ego. And there was another incident where I think MS Dhoni puts his arm around you and says, yeah, "Patty, you don't always have to speak, yeah, uh, because you always maybe felt like you had to say something in the team meeting." And and just yeah, those two struck me as as instructional. Um, yes. So the Gary Kirsten incident, um, you know, the, the team had played particularly poorly. We had very clear um, agendas and strategy for that game. We knew what our red flags were, were for that game. And we went on the field and literally everything we'd planned to do, we didn't do. And all the red flags, things like complacency, we literally fell into those traps. And after the game, Gary said, I think this is one of those unique times where we probably need to talk to the players because we didn't talk to the players on game day. It was always the day after. And as having been brought up as a South African and particularly in a rugby environment, if you do something wrong, you get the you get the proverbial eight cuck from your coach. Mm. That, that's a technical sports term, by the way. <laughs> um, and it, it, it felt appropriate. This is one of those times the players need to hear from us. And, you know, we discussed what what is the message that Gary actually wanted to convey. We spoke about how to convey that message because a, a South African conveying that to South Africans would have been quite forthright where con- Indians, we had learned that to deliver direct message, you actually do it a little bit more um, uh, subtly as a, than, than what a South Africans would normally do it. So we figured out how to deliver the message but the last thing was that, um, you know, I said to Gary, is this something you want to say or is this something you honestly believe will serve the players if they hear it? Hmm. And Gary had the awareness to go, actually, no, it's something I want to get off my chest. And we knew in that moment. So by saying this, you're serving your own need of getting this off your chest. That's not serving the player's need. So yeah. I grabbed a couple of beers and we went outside and gave Gary the opportunity to get off his chest to me, though, the players didn't need to hear that at that time was our best thinking. And you went on to win that ODI series from 1-0 down and obviously a bit later went on to win the World Cup, which, um, you know, and, and you, just to go more sort of specific on coaching, you're not a big believer in the 10,000-hour theory that Malcolm Gladwell has put forward. I'm sure 10,000 hours of anything would be would help us in some way. But, um, it's yeah, if we dr- we all drive cars and you've been driving a car for 25 years or whatever the case yeah. may be, you're not a Formula One driver now, despite the fact that you've done 20,000 hours behind the wheel yeah. and me, me neither. So just uh, you're a great believer in talent is the foundation that, that a sportsman in particular can build on. Uh, yes. So um, that 10,000 hours, it's actually the, that would be a great study in marketing because that, that is a flawed concept that now pe- a lot of people have bought into. Um, in order to achieve excellence – one needs to, number one, be building on a talent or a, natu- a natural strength. And you, if you spend a, invest a lot of time developing something that you're naturally pretty damn good at, you will get to pretty high heights. I know, for example, for music, I'm not very musically oriented at all. Mm-hmm. If I spend 10,000 hours looking to the pay, pay the piano, I might get a gig at the Perseverance Tavern around the corner <laughs> on a Tuesday afternoon. Should be so lucky. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you need to build it on your talent. Um, and then there needs to be a real learning mindset 
um, along with that. So if you give a kid and you start getting a kid to do the same thing over and over and over, the because the repetitiveness of that actually the learning, both of the mental learning and the physical learning, actually starts plateauing. So okay. if you start that ten thousand hours and you do too much too early, you also work against that kid. And then there needs to be an environment. They need to be inspired. They need yeah. to love what they're doing. As you say, and there's a lot of people who've been in their jobs for well more than ten thousand hours, and they certainly haven't left left a high, you know, reached a high level of mastery um, because they're not playing to their strengths. Number one, they they're not in a really inspiring learning environment. Number two, and therefore they're not inspired each time they spend those hours to achieve mastery. So uh, there's a whole lot of conditions that go along with that ten thousand hour rule. Well, I don't know if you've read Matthew Syed's book Bounce. Um, he's a, a journalist, yeah, yeah. and 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 he's he 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 tries to debunk the talent theory. He, he says there's no such thing as talent, which I don't fully buy. But his theory was he played table tennis for Great Britain <clears throat> at the Olympic Games, and he grew up in Reading in the 70s in England. And unusually, his parents had a double a triple garage. Unusually, uh, his dad came home one day with a table tennis table uh, in 70s England. Unusually, or luckily, he had a brother two years older than him. And basically, long story short, he was able to practice and play. He went to a school where the Great Britain table tennis coach happened to be a teacher. If he had been two houses down, he would have had been zoned to a different school. So he was just using all these examples of, it wasn't my talent. It was by pure luck where I was and what happened, all these steps happened that made me into an Olympic table tennis uh, player. So I guess he tries to tie in with the Gladwell theory but I don't fully buy it because I, you know, we've both got children. You, you see a six-year-old pick up a cricket bat and he just can hit a cover drive and he yeah. just, he's got it. And then another kid holds it yep. the wrong way up. Mm-hmm. So w- what do you sort of make of that so, concept? So, so I have read some of uh, Syed's book and I am aware of that. Um, I guess my answer is there are, there are some people out there who I know are very good scientists Um who have literally said that what Syed's done, he's taken one or two anecdotes and he's tried to make, it's, it's pretty much built on fake science. So I'm not saying I'm a big scientist and everything that science says is right. And if science doesn't prove it, it's wrong. I mm-hmm. think science is right 50% of the time because 50% or even more of what happens in the world, you can't actually measure. We don't have measurables for. Uh, but what you do have it these days with you know social media and everyone being able to be their own one-person publishing house uh, one can take a theory um, um, that doesn't have any foundation in science whatsoever. It's just an anecdote. And if you build a good story, you can sell it to people yeah. and they start believing it. So Syed's theory in bounce um, and refuting talent is based on, you know, fake science. So what is success then to you? I mean, how do you define it as a as a life coach? Um, so how, how I define success for me is to to really go into and it, it takes a whole long time to figure out. So outwardly, in whatever profession, how would I measure my success as a as a parent? What would success look like for me? Um, and is it is it what it looks like? How I want to be be experienced, or what experience my kids? Mm. I want my kids to have as a result of my parenting. As a coach, um, I'm very clear on that. I want players to have. At the end of their career, and it might be a 20-year career, um, I might see a player only for seven weeks during, for example, an Indian Premier League tournament. I want that player at the end of their 20-year career to look back and say, that seven weeks when I w- was in Paddy's team was the best 
seven weeks of my entire career. Now that might never happen, but to me that is success. And the question, next question is, okay, so what do I need to provide that player mm. that they have such an unbelievable experience in the team that I'm coaching? And the only way to answer that is actually to find out from the player what is it that you need to have an unbelievable experience. And if I can deliver that to a fairly high degree, that is success. So it's really tied into what is the experience of the people who I'm working with. And that's my success. Um, one needs to look at health. You know, I've worked with a lot of uh, business people who've materially very, very successful, um, but they've have a broken relationship. Their wife's left them. They're fairly estranged from their kids. Their health is in a poor state, and they have you know a stroke or heart attack at the age of sixty years old with a truckload of money. Mm. So that's partial success. So for me, success it's different for everyone, and. What I really encourage is to take a step back and a deeper look as, so what are the things that are important for you and important for the important people in your life? And make sure your definition of success is really comprehensive. That even if you don't make the spring bucks or you don't make a whole lot of money, that from a, for, as a parent, uh, as a friend, what is, what is success as a friend? You want your friends to be able to trust you, to be able to turn to you. What is it that you want from your friends? And that then informs how do I need to conduct myself so that I can one day when I'm lying on my deathbed be surrounded by amazing people and experience this amazing love and amazing support. What do I, who do I need to be in the world to achieve that level of success? And that's not something that's measurable. Only you'll know, it, but it's very much a... A felt experience. So going back to the sports field, when you when you and Gary first took the Indian job, you you neither had coaching experience. I mean, Gary had 101 Test matches of experience, and 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 you didn't. But um, and you sort of sat with the Indian team, and and they had these superstars. I mean, Sachin Tendulkar, probably the most famous person in in cricket. Um, how intimidating was that that first meeting? And I remember you. you you can explain it a little bit. You, you tried to give them a message that you really worked hard on for weeks to deliver this message, and then it kind of just fell flat. And, yeah. and, and how sort of chastening and important was that for you guys as coaches? Yeah, so the, so what Gary and I did on the flight over to India, and as yet Gary had never coached a team at the time, I was in a role that didn't exist. So effectively, we were quite um, green, each of us in our roles, um, taking over what is the biggest brand in world sport. Mm. Uh, and we had four goals. One was to the number one test team in the world, a position India hadn't got to. We wanted to win the World Cup in 2011, which they hadn't done since uh, in, in 27 years. We knew we needed to create a happy team environment. And those are two different things, happy and team. And the fourth point we never shared with anyone was we wanted the players to become better people. Um, now, we never shared that one because there's a certain arrogance, I guess, in that, that who did Gary Kirsten, Paddy Upton think they were, that we could make other people better people? Were we good enough people ourselves? But also we weren't employed to make the Indian cricketers better people, employed to make them win. But we knew if we accomplished that and we made traction in that area, particularly with these superstars, that would go a long way to building the foundation for the other goals we wanted to achieve. Um, the players did ask Gary. He, he met them. He went and joined them on a tour prior to him and I um, coming on full-time. And that had a caretaker coat for six months. Six months, And what most of the players said was, we want a strategy. We want some clarity in terms of our direction forward. So Gary did spend a whole heap of time coming up with a strategy that gave them enough direction and go forward, but also wasn't too much that was overly prescriptive because we both really did go there with a clarity that we were going to use a coaching approach. 
which meant we were going to find out what the players wanted and we were going to deliver on that as opposed to coming there as a bunch of instructors, know-it-alls, telling the players what to do. And in fact, the previous coach, Greg Chappell, who was probably the most pedigreed cricket coach at the time in the world, he was actually unceremoniously ejected from that system because of that very approach. He he knew what needed to be done, but his prescriptive approach really mm. didn't work. So we knew we couldn't come in with that. Gary presented what the players asked for, a very clear but fairly broad-based strategy going forward. At the end of that, it was literally in the first hour and a half, the first morning on day one with the team. And at the end of the presentation, which I thought was pretty good, <laughs> but I sat watching the players while Gary was presenting, and um, Gary said, what do you guys think? And they all went, yeah, yeah, that's that's good. That's happy with that. And we broke for tea and Gary and I sat down together and we literally both said the same thing at the same time. We said, like, looked at each other and went, oh, shit, mm. that didn't land. Sorry, that's another t- a technical term, yeah. that. Um, <laughs> and um, we realized that, yes, it works, wasn't a really sincere one. So we did a 180-degree turnaround an hour and a half into our job on day one. And we went back into the room and said, okay, guys, You've got a 50% win ratio in ODI cricket here. Um, there's a whole lot of stuff that's working. You're playing good cricket. Uh, tell us all the things that are working in the system that you really enjoy and that you don't want us to meddle with or change. Uh, and we broke that down into practices, into meetings, into logistics, travel, um, pre-game meetings, how we manage ourselves during games, the kind of cricket we're playing in, in, in ODI and um, test cricket. And the we'd had a fairly exhaustive exercise of getting back from the players what they felt was really working. And then over the lunch break, we took everything that they'd given to us that they said was working. Um, I put it into sort of a, a strategy and sort of compartmentalized it. And we presented it back, exactly those words, back to players, but just in a more organized and structured way. And Gary said, and what do you guys think of, of this as a strategy going forward? And the yes, that's great, we're happy. That buy-in was comprehensive and significantly different to the the yes mm. that we got before the time where Gary had prescribed what he thought, felt was best. When we gave the players what they said was working, and then the strategy was, let's take this stuff that you think's working and make it even better. Yeah. And that really formed the foundation of our strategy for the next three years. But the Indian experience, I think, is very instructional you know, for everything. But I think it'd be nice to just talk about it a little bit. You had Sachin Tendulkar, who seems like, a, the way you're describing, an incredibly level-headed guy. He seems totally unaffected by this massive fame, and it can't be easy for the way the way he probably has to live in India. And and then you had Anil Kumble, who was on his way out when you when you got there, but he he did some lovely stuff too that showed his real character that that perhaps um, wasn't obvious to people outside. But he, he did a lot of great things. And then just in in terms of technical stuff, you got someone like Verinder Sawag to to put away a weakness in his technical side of his game. So. Let's just talk about Sashin for a second. I mean, you must have, as a young coach coming in, he was already the greatest cricketer in the world at that point. Was it a bit intimidating to try and deal with someone like, well, you're, initially you would have thought maybe it's a bit intimidating, but when you met him, did that change? So so there's two things that went on for me, and I know in talking to Gary as well, going into that environment was if we wore our traditional coaching cap, which was one of we need to go in and tell players what needs to happen here. With that cap on, it was very intimidating. And certainly for me, you hadn't played test cricket. For Gary, maybe not as much, but he hadn't coached at all. Um, But as soon as I took that cap off and I put my 
what I'd call business coaching or modern day or contemporary coaching cap on, which said, I need to go in to find out, to help the players and for us to collectively figure out what is the best thing for us to do to get to the goals that we need to get to. With that cap on, I didn't need to be the person who presented all the answers. I just needed to be the facilitator who was going to play a part in helping find the best answers or elicit the best answers from the group and have them land on the table. And that, listen, I don't have a huge cricket playing pedigree. I don't know the game any better than probably a thousand of our listeners is going to listen to this. I'm not an expert in the game. But with a coaching cap on, I don't need to be the expert in prescribing technique, tactic, strategy. My expertise needs to be extracting the collective intelligence that sits either in the room, and if it doesn't sit in the room, I need to help figure out, well, where do we need to go to get the best advice on this particular subject if it doesn't sit in the room, and then construct the strategy based on the collective intelligence. And really, that method of coaching, that method of parenting, certainly that method of leadership in the business space is what is required in what we're sitting now in the knowledge or the internet era. It's no longer possible to be the expert. Yeah. So 20 years ago, yes, the CEO of a business or the coach of a sports team arrive with your clever ideas and impose that strategy on, on your team, and that worked. But today it doesn't work. It's no longer possible to be the expert in anything. So I certainly don't feel any pressure when I walk into a room. And my one of my early coaching, cricket coaching assignments, I had Mike Hussey, uh, Shane Watson, Jacques Cullis, and Owen Morgan in one team. Hmm. Um, I don't know as you know as much about cricket as what Owen Morgan could put in in his left glove. Never mind the four of them. Uh, but it was never intimidating walking into a room with those guys. In fact, it was actually quite easy to coach because I would arrive with questions, yeah. knowing the answers sat there. But if I came with a traditional coaching approach, thinking I need to arrive with the answers, I was going to get blown out of the water on day one. Yeah. And and Session, I suppose that a lot of players would have been looking to him, how he responded to you guys. And, and I guess he responded in a really positive manner, which made, did it smooth the road a bit? Well, well, the, the first thing Gary did, he went, went around to all the players. And I, at some t- stage later, Gary met them before me. He asked the players, what do you want from me as your coach? Hmm. And he really listened to them and he provided what they wanted. So the road was already smooth because it was just a case of the players now had heard this. And I guess in their head, they would have thought, okay, so this coach has asked what we want. Let's now see, is was that just a ch- token gesture to try and get us on his side? And then he's going to prescribe mm. what he wants, like the previous coach. Or is he genuinely going to listen and provide that? And interestingly, when Gary asked Sachin that question before starting full-time, Sachin's answer was, I want you to be my friend. Interesting. And so Gary would th- threw balls to him for hours and hours, week in and week out, and they would just talk cricket. Gary would never try and coach Sachin or diagnose a problem or prescribe a solution. He would throw to him and they would, as two friends and colleagues, they would talk about cricket and it was left Sachin to extract whatever value he wished to extract out of the coaching conversation or the cricket conversation. As opposed to Gary saying, Sachin, get your left elbow a bit higher up. That was never going to work. Yeah. We could go on for hours. There's so many great stories. But I think one of the, for sport in particular, but I guess, again, in all walks of life, we, we talk about mental toughness. What is mental toughness? Now, we've just seen the Springboks won the World Cup. England looked like they, they were the more rattled team in the final. 
they seemed to go away from their game plan a little bit, you know, started running the ball behind their own poles, which they hadn't had done. Um, was that a, a lack of mental toughness? Because I know you don't really believe in the term mental toughness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you quote 44 studies, so there's no definition of, of mental toughness. So, so maybe as a parting shot, what is mental toughness? Because we all think it, it's the thing that makes Tiger Woods better than uh, someone else or Roger Federer or whoever. So just take us through that. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing right up front is mental toughness is one of the single biggest causes for all the mental problems in sport. The concept of mental toughness. And what I want to say right up front, there is no such thing. I've been lucky to work with many of the best athletes in the world from 10 sports now over the last 15 and nearly 20 years, in fact. I've almost never met an athlete at the top of their game who is confident, fully secure in themselves, no vulnerabilities, no insecurities, no doubts, and no negative thoughts, which those things are supposedly mental fragilities as being vulnerable, insecure, doubting, negative thoughts. Every single one of them has that. The reason being is that human beings, and every single one of us as human beings has doubts, we have insecurities, we have vulnerabilities, and we have negative thoughts. That is normal, and to put the label mentally weak to that is a big problem. Mm. Um, so there's no such thing as mental toughness. Yes, you get the odd out-and-out psychopath who doesn't suffer those things, but let's leave those as an outlier, as outliers for now. Um, so when an athlete feels they need to be mentally tough or coaches say to an athlete, you guys need to be tough, it puts an unrealistic expectation of perfection on them because it's not possible. But when we engage those big moments, we engage people as human beings with being real, being vulnerable, being honest, being human, being normal, then we can have the conversation of example, guys, it's okay to be scared. It's okay to be nervous. It's okay to have some doubts. That's all okay. So let's drop any need to mentally battle and label these things as being wrong or bad. That in itself uses up so much mental energy to try and pretend that I'm not scared or pretend that I'm tough and confident and full of um, yeah, full of confidence. It's just not real. So there needs to be a realness. And when there is that acceptance of these things that are going on for me are, are okay, they're just mental distractions. But what's important is that I need to focus on the task at hand. So by making those things okay, it set, relax, takes the power away from them to distract us. It's okay. It's normal. Mm. But what do we need to be focusing on in this moment? So that's where having a clear game plan is really useful. Um, and one of the things that I'm assuming and I'm hearing from the, the interviews afterwards that the Springboks had something greater to play for. They were playing for a, a country. They were playing for people. They were playing for others back home. They were playing for a greater cause. That is one of the single best tools to help us navigate and so-called and inverted commas, you can't see it, be mentally strong or have that mental clarity in those big moments is to be doing whatever you're doing for a cause greater than yourself. If we look at every single extreme adventurer who has accomplished a world's first or a feat that other humans haven't done, every single one of them does it for a cause greater than themselves. Yes, they have big egos and they do it for themselves, Mm. but they have a greater cause that they publicly state that when they get to that moment where it's just too tough, there's no one looking, it's much easier to and much safer for their lives to turn around and stop or go back home, they plug into that greater cause and it takes them through that. Um, So having that higher cause and it's 
no different to any of us because our ego is very shallow in terms of its ability to drive us through really, really difficult situations. If we're serving ourselves, we're going to capitulate. That doubt, insecurity, negative thoughts is going to kick in and going to start actually getting some traction. But if we accept those things and we actually do it for something greater than ourselves, and I can't not use this opportunity to say, can you imagine if we had a whole lot of politicians in this country who were genuinely doing what they were doing to serve a cause greater than themselves? Sure. Oh my goodness, the stuff that the Springboks did and Sia and Rassi were talking about, do you know what? That could actually, in fact, that would happen. But unfortunately, we have a situation where there are too many leaders, not just in this country and not just in politics. It's, it's been made okay to serve yourself ahead of serving other people and serve your own agendas. Um, and in business, we do that at the cost of the environment or society. Um, and in politics, we do that in this in a lot of places at the cost of the country or the cost of other people. And in sport, when you start doing it to serve yourself, what happens is you actually end up capitulating in that high pressure moment because the pressure gets to you and you fall over. Um, yeah. Whereas, you know, I'm sure the South African rugby team went onto the field knowing that we're actually playing for 56 million people back home. That makes it okay, and you can actually push through those really difficult times then. And just as a parting shot, too, how do we harness that feeling as individuals? Now, you've spoken about how politicians, if they all served rather than, than had their own egos at play. But how do we, as in, in your opinion, as, as everyday South Africans, maybe just make it a little bit better uh, and, and take some of that spirit forward that we've seen? So, so we've we, we've been growing in, over the last decades more and more. This this outward measure of success is becoming more and more important, and getting more and more of a focus. And the way parents are relating to their children around marks and around school sports and about winning and doing all, we've got an over focus on material and measurable and that sort of tangible measures of success. What we need to be bringing along with that, not to settle that down, but to bring along with it is what I would call, we talked earlier, personal mastery. Is this turn around, take the mirror and look inwards into ourselves and go, what are my values? What, what is my character? How do I want to show up in the world? What is my, if I was really happy and slept well at night and the people who were important to me really held me in high regard and there was trust and respect, what kind of person would I be behaving like? How would that inform my decisions? And start actually going on that journey, that inner journey of personal mastery. And I said, that ties in with hone your skills in the sports field in the boardroom, but also polish your values. And we can be following values that are more other-serving or more self-serving. And it's actually to be more intentional. In terms of our character, we can be ruthless and cutthroat to make a whole lot of money, but we can also be caring and supportive and empowering and uplifting that we help a whole lot of other people also grow while we're growing our own personal or professional wealth. So it's carry on what we're doing, but we need that missing part of who are we being as as people and how intentional are we being about being the best person we can be and that's where servant leadership and placing at least half of the time, placing other people's agendas ahead of our own agenda so we can serve them. Because as humans, we're naturally gregarious and we, we sleep better, we're much more effective, life works better when we actually consider important people around us and particularly causes that are um, 
you know, I'd say worthy causes as opposed to, you know, building the highest building. Yeah. Um, are we serving worthy causes? Are we coming from the right place? And we, we've got our intentions are a little more pure than what they are. Um, you win in sports field as parents, you win at school, we win in the boardrooms, we win and in the political arena, we're going to be winning a lot of the time as well. Paddy Upton, been fascinating. Thank you very much. And get Paddy's book, The Barefoot Coach. It really is a fascinating read. This weekend, we're watching the Telcom knockout where Kaiser Chiefs take on Maritzburg United, the English Premier League with Manchester City against Chelsea. And we'll also keep an eye on the golf in Dubai where Nedbank Golf Challenge winner Tommy Fleetwood has a chance to bank another $2 million bonus if he wins the race to Dubai. And remember to subscribe to our Maverick Sports newsletter and to become a Daily Maverick Insider. I'm Craig Ray. It's been a pleasure hosting Paddy Upton this week. Join us again next week for another podcast.